Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast. Voices in Recovery is produced by Freedom's Path Recovery Society, a registered Canadian charity. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider a donation to Freedom's Path Recovery Society. All donations go directly to assisting Freedom's Path in providing their services free of charge and helps us keep the podcast going. We are grateful for any and all donations. This podcast discusses difficult topics such as childhood abuse, drug and alcohol use, sexuality and sexualized trauma, and more. If you are under the age of 18, please speak with your legal guardian prior to listening. The opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individual and not those of Voices in Recovery or Freedom's Path or any other organization. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Blackfeet in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearspaw, Morley, and Chiniki. We acknowledge the Satina, Hura Dene, and the Métis, Inuit, status and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treaty people. Okay, we're started. Let's do it. Okay, well... <laughs> no time like the present, Heather. Thank you for coming in. All right, yeah. Happy to be here. Um, I guess... It really started when my best friend passed away, and I think it was 12 or 13, was the beginning of grade 9. And I had had a really hard year in grade 7, where I didn't really have any friends. And so grade 8, we connected, and it was like the great year, and I really needed that friendship. And so when she passed, it was really, really hard on me. And I just sort of kind of gave up after that happened and just didn't really care about anything or myself and from that's a there, challenging just, yeah. challenging age to lose someone yeah it really was and I I didn't really understand all the dynamics of the racism that I was facing mm-hmm. and I didn't understand that um I was I wasn't meant to fit in mm-hmm. uh I never really felt like I fit in because I always knew I was Métis and I always knew I was Native and I had brown skin but I knew that the the other natives in my school, there was like a handful of us. Um, and most of them were from the res, and we lived completely different lives as I was raised in the city away from my culture. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really fit in with them either. And I didn't really fit in with the other white kids. So mm-hmm. And I never really understood why as an adult and understanding everything about uh, racism and the effects. Um, I do now. Mm-hmm. But uh, back then, I really didn't, and it was really hard for me. How, how did it, like, as a, and, and this, this is just my curiosity and my ignorance, of course, right? Because I don't, I don't know what it's like to be racialized. But at 12 or 13, like, being kind of not fitting in with, with anyone, right? Kind of being your own, almost like your own culture, I guess. Like, left in the, what do they call that, limbo kind of thing. Um, yeah, well, that was one thing my best friend was actually Métis too, okay. and so we had that kind of, and she was also kind of raised out of her culture, mm-hmm. and we had that connection, Okay. so right losing on. that was really hard. And and that was the friend you lost? Uh, yeah, her oh. name was Candice, okay. um, she died in a boating accident, and after that I really kind of got into drinking and smoking weed and basically whatever was available, mm-hmm. and from there I just... I just kind of was in active addiction to alcohol and weed for, wow, into my 20s. And um, 
when I was in my 20s, I got into crystal meth. And I, I tried it once. And the, one of the people who had kind of turned us on to it, the day after we tried it, we came to us and was kind of like begging us for more. And we were, that kind of scared us. Mm -hmm. So we didn't want to do it again. Uh, but we did try it again, like maybe six months later. And then that's when we kind of got hooked. And, mm -hmm. and from there... It's got some nasty hooks, that shit, eh? Yeah, yeah. It's really, it's really powerful addiction. Mm -hmm. And... The physical cravings are a lot, and because um, you I went from like alcohol and marijuana to meth, right? yeah. So that like a that's a whole other craving level, right? Like oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I I was really afraid of overdosing, and so I never I had I had my own kind of set limits. Like mm. I only stayed up over like one night, and then I would sleep the next day. Mm. Whereas I I knew people who like we're up like around a week at yeah. a time and I just I couldn't do that yeah. and I was also I did I smoked one gram in one day and that was the most I'd ever done because also for, from fear of overdosing really that's a lot yeah and uh well that's a lot to a guy who never has never done meth well it just it was yeah. so powerful like the second time we tried it we just really got hooked yeah. so and then while I was in, once we did get hooked, I watched everyone around me get paranoid mm. and have those mental health issues. And my partner at the time actually did have um, uh, substance-induced psychosis and had to like have medication, antipsychotic mm. medication. And and after that point, even even weed would um, exacerbate his symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, I don't really know what happened to him, but uh, yeah, I know that watching that and and he was my partner and he wasn't, he wasn't really there a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Like he would be muttering to people that I couldn't see and had a lot of uh, hallucinations and stuff and things, <laughs> and it was really hard for me to deal with, and I was. It got so, like, my life was so horrible, and it was so completely surrounding me, addiction. Like, I'd get up, and it just consumed my entire life, and I just was so, I hated my life. I hated that my partner didn't even know I was there, and I hated mm -hmm. that I was isolated from everyone else. I didn't have any real friends. All of the people that we used with, I didn't really consider them friends. I just considered them they're doing this shameful thing that I'm doing that mm -hmm. I can't do around anyone else because, you know, everyone else is normal. And at least they're not judging you, right? Yeah, well, yeah. they, well, and they kind of did too. I mean, I, I say that like knowing that some people still judge anyway, but at least you had a place where it probably felt like you might belong a little bit. I didn't really feel no? like, I never felt like I belonged. I didn't trust yeah. them. That makes sense to me. They weren't my support people. Mm -hmm. They were just the people who I used with. Yeah. And so I think that made it easier for me to let them go when I made that decision. And I always kind of felt like it was an easier choice for me. When I went to Poundmaker's Lodge, a lot of people were in there because of like drug court and stuff mm -hmm. and they had to be there. And I just remember feeling really grateful that I had brought myself and mm -hmm. I had made that choice. And I watched people like, 
you know, fall off and get kicked out of the program. And it was really sad, but I made it through because I just didn't want that life to be surrounded around meth. Mm -hmm. And I stayed there and I got out and I stayed sober and I've been sober off meth ever since. And that was over 16 years ago. Well, congratulations. But even after I left, I was so still so unhealthy and unhealed. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really focus on that for a long time. I got with my new partner, my, well, well, my, my ex now, but my children's dad. Mm -hmm. And I got pregnant, like, really in the next few months that I got out of treatment. So I just kind of got into this other unhealthy relationship mm -hmm. and had a family and went from there. But then eventually, after I had my kids, I... I have these, you know, people who never asked to be born and, mm -hmm. and I felt like I had an obligation to them to do better mm -hmm. because I know, like, I could see how unhealthy our relationship was and I worked really hard to, on my own healing. We, we actually did break up uh, after my youngest daughter was born and being a single mother and figuring everything out for myself it was it was really healing to gain back that independence mm -hmm. but i've had to really put in a lot of healing into my trauma like from my relationship and just from all of the trauma that i've experienced in my life mm -hmm. and so even now i'm still working on that but if i wouldn't have uh gotten sober from that there's no way that I would have made it this far mm -hmm. so and I know for me personally the cultural aspect is is what kept me there mm -hmm. and what really made a difference for me and I specifically chose Poundmaker because it, uh, for one it was out of Calgary because mm -hmm. I just wanted to like just leave the whole city behind and just focus on myself which I did and I really wanted something that would connect me to my culture because I always, like my mom growing up, I, she always made sure I knew that I was Métis and mm -hmm. that I was Native and, and always taught me to be proud of that. Mm -hmm. And so I've kind of taken that as an adult and after treatment, the healthier I've got, the more involved in the, in the Indigenous community in Calgary. Mm -hmm. And... I feel like I've made a lot of connections and support for my children and brought back a lot of cultural practices and ceremony, access mm -hmm. to medicines, things that I didn't have growing up. Yeah. And that are really, I, I think are going to be really important for my children's healing mm -hmm. because, you know, they, they experienced trauma when I was with their dad and we were both quite unhealthy. Yeah. And so... I'm devoting the rest of my life to building those healthy relationships and modeling that healthier mm -hmm. behavior for them because I have three sons and one day they're going to be, you know, three partners mm -hmm. and I want them to be healthy, non-toxic partners and have healthy, non-toxic relationships mm -hmm. where they can have good lives and healthy lives because that's that's basically... As an Indigenous woman, Indigenous mother, life giver, I, I don't have rights, I have responsibilities. Mm -hmm. 
I have responsibilities to my children, to myself, especially to them and to their children. Mm. So that's an interesting distinction between rights and responsibility. I don't think I've ever heard anyone describe it like that. It makes a lot of sense, though. Well, yeah, because in Indigenous culture, all things are connected. Mm. And I'm seeing that more, even research and evident research based is actually proving this mm -hmm. um, in terms of the, the effects of racism and stuff on people of color mm -hmm. and poor outcomes. Yeah. So like that, that's been proven and these are things I know and have experienced and have seen and have lived. Mm -hmm. And I understand now like the days when I just feel exhausted and just cry and I'm, I understand that that's from dealing with that racism mm -hmm. like every day and, and maybe something triggering happened to mm -hmm. set me off that day. And it's, it's an accumulation because being an Indigenous person, I'm navigating my own trauma, but as a part of the Indigenous community, I'm navigating that community trauma mm -hmm. as well. So it, it's really important to focus on that healing and to do that work because mm -hmm. it needs to start somewhere. And if it doesn't start with me, where is it going to start? Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm better than anyone, but I think the best thing that I can do is model all of the things that I want to see. Mm -hmm. So that's what I try to do. And accountability is a huge part of that. So. Yeah. Well, and, and that, that brings up an interesting question for those of us who are non-Indigenous and non, not people of color, right? Like, there's something you said there just absolutely speaks to my privilege, right? Like, it, it speaks right to it. I don't have to, I don't get worn out by racism all day because I'm not treated that way, right? Nor do I have an answer for it because I'm not treated that way. So it's one of those things, as you're talking about this, it's like that in itself is a privilege, that, that thing that to us, like to me, a non-Indigenous, non-racialized individual, could never fathom the extra weight that a person has to carry, right, in terms of those things. Not to mention, I pass as straight-looking. So, I'm not only white, but straight-looking, straight-passing, so basically the world's my oyster, right? Um, but having said that, that helps me recognize where that privilege really sits, right, and what I have to do so anyway, I'm just I appreciate you, uh, the way you worded that because it really did. I think even for those out th those people out there who might not be as ignorant as I am, they might actually that might make sense to them, right? Because I have a big thick wall of ignorance, and there's like really opening up to that is I understand why people get mad. I do because it's hard to those of us who think we work really hard. Um, we, it's hard for us to accept that we have privilege because we work hard, right? So we think that that's what it means, but that's not what it means. The, what it really means is I would have to work 10 times as hard as you, just like you do, to get the same things. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, and that's the big difference is that no one's saying that I'm lazy. All they're saying is I didn't have to carry that extra backpack, yeah. right? And by backpack, I mean like bricks and mortar from generational stuff, right? Um, and it wasn't thrown in my face every day. Well, I think that um, the awareness is bringing us into the right direction mm -hmm. in terms of that 
being backed up by research, we can bring that to policymakers and mm -hmm. say, look, you know, this is racism is causing this. It's costing us money and healthcare and mm -hmm. justice and all this. And because those are the points that, that are going to make it. Like, mm -hmm. sadly, you can't say, oh, well, we're going to save all these lives and, you know, better quality. And that's really, you know, politics always comes into it. So, mm -hmm. Which is sad when they quantify people people's difficulties into politics. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because there isn't like one answer. There's got to be a, a bunch of answers for this, right? And mm -hmm. one of the things that um, impresses me about you is you're, you're in school and you're young, working, working at this field, right? Um, but while you've been in school, you've come up with your own program. You've, um, and that, I mean, that's impressive, right? Like, and, and so you're doing some incredible stuff to help stop that cycle that you had to experience. What, what is it like for your kids? In school like do they talk about because I don't know I'm totally disconnected right I'm an uncle and we don't talk about that stuff most of the time but like what are your kids talking about in terms of feedback at school and stuff like that well my two youngest actually go to the indigenous school in Dover and it's oh. a Tati learning center yep. and so I think they probably have um, less experiences with racism and a lot more understanding, which is excellent. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see more of these programs available. Um, I know there's a lot of Indigenous parents within the city who would love to see uh, Indigenous junior high, mm -hmm. high school, because the fact that it ends off very into elementary mm -hmm. kind of leaves us hoping for something a little more. Something more comprehensive, focused. right? Yeah. Yeah. It would make sense to have, and, and honestly, just having uh, off the top of my head, it would make sense to put non-Indigenous kids in those classes and those schools. I, I believe they do right? have non-Indigenous kids at the school. I, and the reason I say that is not because they deserve it, just because it would help us learn, right? Absolutely. Because, because there's that one bit of teaching that we will never get in the mainstream schools, right? That deep history of what really happened, you know, because we've never got it yet. I know I didn't get it. Well, that's why as Indigenous people, we have a, such a strong connection to the land mm -hmm. because it's, it's such a huge part of who we are. Mm -hmm. Like, we're all from different territories, and of those different territories, they have, you know, some live in the mountains, some are from the prairies, mm -hmm. and in those different places, there are different medicines available, and there's different practices, different languages. Mm -hmm. So, you know... Individually speaking, where you're from really matters, mm -hmm. and the connection to the land really matters. So bringing mm -hmm. that back is really important. Agreed. I think the some of us who don't have a deep understanding of our lineages, we we don't get to benefit from that, right? Like from the the lessons of our ancestors, so to speak. We don't get to we don't have the same connection in terms of that, like um, which is too bad. I think it really is. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think that's why lots of like non racialized people look into their history. Right. And don't get me wrong. I'm sure some of them look into it and are like, Ooh, I don't want to tell anybody about that. <laughs> <laughs> and that might be my history. I don't even know. Right. Like, well, I think there's a huge disconnect on um, non racialized people in terms of their own culture mm -hmm. because their cultures have rich histories as well. Yeah. I think they just don't have that same connection. 
but I, I think that non-racialized people have every right to look into their own ways mm -hmm. and their own history because it does matter. It matters where you come from mm -hmm. to where you're going. Totally. And so where I come from, I come from, well, personally, I was born in Leask, Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom is uh, Cree Métis and my dad is mixed Ojibwe. Uh, Métis mixed as well. Mm -hmm. um, I with my mom moved with me to Calgary when I was a baby, so I basically grew up here in Treaty Seven. Um, so you you've it, you've taught me a lot and uh, like about coming in onto Treaty Seven land, which as you mentioned before to me that it's not where you're from, so you honor the um, rites and rituals of Treaty Seven. Absolutely. Did I say that right? Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell? Can you tell us the process of that? Because I. Well, this is as an indigenous person who's reconnecting. I am learning these too, and and through my own missteps in community organizing, mm -hmm. I've learned as a visitor here. I don't have the right to speak for Treaty Seven, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so and if I'm going to come onto Treaty Seven land. I, I need to have their input. I can't just come here and do my thing that's completely disrespectful. Mm -hmm. So if I want to throw a rally or organize or something, I need to work with Treaty 7. Mm -hmm. I need to approach them in a good way, following protocol and and get their input and get their permission, mm -hmm. definitely, because this is not my land. And, and you know, this is... That's the thing. There's so many disconnected Indigenous people that even Indigenous people are learning because these are not lessons mm -hmm. that I grew up with, but these are things that I've I've learned as an adult and I'm still learning. Yeah. So I think maybe just to recognize that and to remember that everyone has their own trauma mm -hmm. and life already dumps on people, so you don't have to. Yeah, that's There's, for sure. I feel like I can live a good life without hurting other people, and so mm -hmm. that's what I try to do. Right on. Like, I'm just looking at your shirt. You're wearing this shirt, and I'm just going to describe it to those people listening. It says, land back, water back, medicines back, bundles back, ceremonies back, cosmology back, family back, values back, language back, community back, culture back. And, and anyone out there who doesn't understand, that's how much has been taken. That's all that's been taken. Um, and that is a whole bunch of like life, right? Um, and so I appreciate that. It's kind of gives me goosebumps looking at it. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> holy crap, like I didn't think I was gonna feel that today, but I'm feeling that I'm feeling a big time because that's a big list. I love my political t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, me too. And I think it's it helps because most people like myself, we wouldn't know. We weren't told, right? Like I I mean I get it. Like if you're, if we're just learning about it now, it's going to be hard to take some of those lessons, right? Like, and to like, and to know what to do next, really, because I think that's part of the trouble is nobody really knows what to do, you know. Well, I think that that work is starting to be done. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing a lot of anti-racism work mm -hmm. where non-racialized people are educating each other, yeah. which takes the onus off of us. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes, really, it is it did it is re-traumatizing yeah. and it is triggering, because this is our life. Mm -hmm. 
I could I could go to the Walmart and be followed around, mm-hmm. and you know it's it's not just a story. Yeah, it's that's our everyday. So I've started to see it more and more, man, in every day mm-hmm. when I'm just out and about too. I don't know how I don't know how people like survive with it, right? Like, it would you know sometimes it's pretty hopeless out here, right? And I can't imagine how much extra hopelessness is attached to that when when there's no foundation of like identity right like there's no foundation there and man I, yeah i don't know man and it's that's a where the responsibility comes in definitely yeah. because if i didn't make these moves my children would still be living with more of the unhealthy mm-hmm. trauma from me and their dad from our unhealthy trauma mm-hmm. And they wouldn't have access to those medicines and those ceremonies, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't have the Indigenous community that I've made those strides for. Mm-hmm. So that's that's me stepping up to my responsibility because I know there are other Indigenous people who are still stuck in their trauma, and mm-hmm. they're not at that point in their healing. Yeah. And so when I'm able to do those things, it's it's my responsibility to do them for those that can't. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Like it's kind of like the, it's my our responsibility to be useful to each other, right? Like, or at least that's the way I look at it. Not everybody thinks that's the same way, but um, just to be useful useful to each other, and that is like a, a cycle breaking, um, like cycle breaking work, right? Like every day when when you raise when you raise those children. Your children, those children, as though they're strangers' children, um, <laughs> but they're not, right? They're they're our children, and yeah. and they're like they're they're the best hope we got. Like that's what I say about Darcy's daughter too, and my and my nieces and my nephews, right? Like they're the best hope we have. Absolutely, know? and I want to give them the best chance yeah. because when Idol No More happened, it's like we can't be idle in under our own oppression anymore yeah because now that we can see what's happening and our rights are being oppressed Mm -hmm. it's our responsibility to do what we can for the next generation for our children because they are our best hope Mm -hmm. and so to give not just them but their children our people the best chance possible healing needs to happen. Yeah. And the only way to do that is to change it and, and work differently, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a shame. I mean, we were talking about these, uh, this, these convoys all over the place here and like just the, to me, like I'm starting to understand the lateral violence more and more that, that folks talk about, like in terms of within their own cultures and like noticing that there's people of color and, and indigenous people too, I'm sure, like involved in this, like, and seeing swastikas as well as all those, like that, that, I have to tell you, like my grandpa served in the war against the Nazis, like this is like really hard for me to, to see, right? Like it's been harder than I thought even. It's highly divisive, yeah. which... Going through the pandemic and already dealing with anti-vaxxers on a level is, it it is really divisive. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when someone says convoy or freedom, I'm just like, nope. Yep. 
Not right now. Yeah. I don't have the time or the because it, I just it is so divisive because yeah. there are there's there's a, a highly racist it, the organizers are known racists mm -hmm. with well documented ties to white supremacy mm -hmm. and and if you need more evidence on the flags they're waving um, I'm not sure what other evidence you need <laughs> like, yeah. yeah and so the people supporting that I. It's it's a lot. It it can yeah. be really exhausting, and I just sometimes I have to put up that that boundary mm -hmm. and be like, I just really don't have the space to talk to you and to mm -hmm. engage and give my energy more to this mm -hmm. because it just it's draining. No so. doubt, it's draining, and and I'm I don't know I don't understand why every Canadian or every North American isn't up in arms seeing those flags. I don't understand it. I don't. Like, we literally almost lost a generation of men to that war. And, like, we're just, like, looking away, like, rationalizing it, justifying it, and it boggles my fucking mind, Heather, like, to be honest with you. It's fucking mind-boggling, man. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> like, over five, like, almost five million people dead, man, because of these Never mind. I'm not going to go there. This is like when the Catholic Church comes up. I get a little punchy. You know, because they haven't done, they haven't been really nice to people for very long. So, if at all. Um, anyway, I digress. <laughs> yeah, I definitely did. Sorry, please continue about your, so you're, now we're here and you've created this recovery program based on things that you believe could be enhanced. Not necessarily taken out or anything, but just what you've learned along the way. You've put this program together. Tell us about it. Because it's called Planting Seeds of Change. Okay, so Planting Seeds of Change. Mm -hmm. um, I had this assignment last semester that was part of my practicum mm -hmm. to design a program. And I was really a little bit stumped for part of the semester. And I was thinking about my circle and the people who are close to me. And, and a lot of them are creators. My one friend makes really beautiful masks mm. and earrings, and my other friend made my daughter jingle dress. And I'm always coming up with the medicine. Mm. And so the plant medicine, and that's kind of my contribution, my thing. And so that's when it occurred to me to work the plant medicine into the program. Mm -hmm. And so Seeds of Change, the idea came to me because so many programs are really linear mm -hmm. and checking off your list. Do this thing, do this thing, do this thing. Yeah. And do I one through 12 things and you'll be better off. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I find that healing and recovery are not always linear mm -hmm. there's relapse and there's triggers and mm -hmm. and it's it's not always just tick off everything on the box well because there's emotional bottoms as well along the way mm -hmm. right absolutely like, yeah and so i thought about the medicine and how when you plant excuse me the seeds you water them and you leave them in the sun and you work on them and you don't know when they're going to sprout, mm. but you just 
keep working on it. And then eventually when it's time, when they're ready, they sprout and you see the plants start to grow. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of see the connection to recovery that way because when I do my healing work, I don't always see the results right away, but the healing is still happening and Mm -hmm. I'm still moving forward in my recovery. Yeah. And if, if I relapse and I can still move forward Mm -hmm. in my recovery, that can be a learning experience. Yeah, it doesn't stop you. Yeah, you, yeah. it doesn't mean that I'm moving backwards mm-hmm. or I'm not moving forward. So I wanted the program to honor that, mm-hmm. to honor the idea that you're like a seed, that the changes in your life are like the seeds that you mm-hmm. water and you'll see those changes when the time is right. And so another tie-in is that um, having access to grow the traditional plant medicine, which sadly we won't be able to do because they're not available until close to the end of the program. (laughs) That's right. But I, I think I'll actually give that on their graduation. Oh, that's a good idea. And so they still do get the plants Mm because I don't want them to walk away empty-handed. Yeah. But, you know, rolling with the flow changes and Mm -hmm. everything. And that's that's one of the cool things I've noticed about you is just being able to roll with it and adjust. Because it's hard, right? You did, we did the first, you did your first group last Monday, Monday night, and it was great. Like it was, and you're, honestly, it's going to be something that you get to develop, right? And it, it must feel pretty good to see it kind of unfolding a bit. It does. It's really nice to actually, after spending last semester designing the program at home and mm. really feeling like I, I didn't get to interact with anyone. So it was a bit isolating. Running, yeah. running the program and even through Zoom, yeah. I know we'll be in person soon here, mm-hmm. but it was it was really nice to put in that work and, and have that interaction with other people. So. Yeah, it really does, because that's how the programs grow. Like, I remember when I first came came out with my program a long time ago now, over 10 years, but it was, like, very raw, right? And the first couple groups were very, like, I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm <laughs> trying to figure out what's working and what's not, right? And it takes time. But being flexible and, and creating your own thing, I think, does allow for more flexibility, right? Because it's yours. You could easily change and if then and it's totally up to you. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. It's pretty cool. I, I'm I'm impressed because it was a, a, seriously a semester of creating a program and now you're doing it. So it's pretty good. <laughs> right? Like that's a pretty good, like I remember my first practical, I think I've told you my practicum stories and my first one was not very good. Like it was just not good. Calgary probations. Um, yeah. Uh, less less than than um, desirable memories there, uh, <laughs> only because I had to overwork and it was really more than I had bargained for. But anyway, I'm glad that you had a practical practicum. Was the whole point of that derangement there? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I did also find that a lot of Indigenous people looking for recovery services and programming were really off-put by the religious connotations Mm -hmm. of 12-step programming. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted something that stepped away from that 
and had more indigenous focus because mm -hmm. for me personally, that was really an important aspect of in my recovery. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it also ties in with, I've heard the saying that the opposite of addiction is connection. Mm -hmm. And so building that connection is another focus of the group, a connection yeah. to the land and connection to each other, connection to community. Mm -hmm. Because I really do believe that not just children need of everyone needs mm -hmm. a village because yeah. we are, we are built for connection we're social creatures and and that's that's what's missing mm -hmm. i think so anything that can build that up and strengthen that because i know for me when i struggle i have my people to call i have my supports in mm -hmm. place and and that's what keeps me here and keeps me moving forward is having those connections. Mm -hmm. And so teaching people and helping them figure out how to build those connections, I think will be really vital. Right on. I agree. I think it's going to be super vital. And so as you move forward, what are your plans? Because I, I know what they are, but other people don't. And... Well, this is actually my first dip into post-secondary. Mm -hmm. So it's only a diploma program, but I do know that I'm going to pursue my degree when I finish. Um, I, I don't really know exactly what kind of degree yet, but I do know that I'm going to pursue law school. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be re researching that over the next year to decide what degree will best take me in the direction I need to go. Right on, because you're approaching policy, right? That's kind of... Yeah, yeah. I... The things that I see in terms of recovery and the things that I see that are harmful mm -hmm. happening, because I've seen the closure of Arches, which was the busiest uh, safe consumption site in not just Canada, but North America. Where was that? That was in Lethbridge. That's the one they closed in Lethbridge. That was the one they closed in Lethbridge. Wow. And when they closed it, they promised that they would make a permanent replacement. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, they have a mobile, like very small replacement that is not yeah. meant to be permanent. Yeah. And there's no plans in the works yet. Yeah. And now they're looking to <laughs> close the safe consumption site in downtown Calgary and move it out of downtown, which mm. is not helpful at all. But keeping it down there is not in line with gentrification. <laughs> So we got to well, keep that exactly. in mind. <laughs> and, and I do believe they closed one in Edmonton recently as well. And the, those safe consumption sites are really have really done a great job they, at saving lives and and easing strain on our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Because every every person served is someone is an averted EMS response. Someone didn't mm -hmm. have to call 911. Yeah. And and it's also an averted ER visit mm -hmm. and an averted hospitalization. So those are all our tax dollars mm -hmm. that are being saved. And all those people who do have an overdose reaction, mm -hmm. um, those at a safe consumption site, those overdoses are reversed and those lives are saved, which mm -hmm. also adds value to our economy. Well, of, of course. And... I think it's like, man, I think it's interesting that you mentioned our economy because we're in Alberta and you have to. It's interesting, right? We're talking about human lives and we have to mention economy, which well, to me is just bunk. Like, 
a human life is valuable. I just watched the screening of The Meaning of Empathy. I don't know how to um, say the Blackfoot word, but mm. it's, a, it's a movie by... Um, did you remember. tell me about this one? But it was just on yeah. last night, and it was on the opioid crisis in Blackfoot Territory uh, in Lethbridge and That's on. That's the Reserve. one you suggested to me, Dar Darcy. Yeah. And it was it was a really good movie, and it was really well done. Mm -hmm. And seeing that, like, I can see all of the effects of trauma, and I can see where. It's the policies that need to be fixed in this province because mm -hmm. the evidence is there, the research is there, the numbers are there, it's been proven. Mm -hmm. Portugal did decriminalization. Harm reduction works mm -hmm. and it saves money. But the issue is we need we need people willing to impose policies that mm -hmm. are gonna do the best for our province, for everyone. Do you think not it would you're right. Do you think it would be to work towards that like Obviously, decriminalization is, in my mind, it's, it's the next logical step to go in order to stop this stupid war on drugs that business that they've got. Do you think they have to like literally drop that war on drug stuff in order to move towards decriminalization? Because yes. there's still so many abstinent-based places that say nay, right? Like, I, I 100%. I think that um, the research on Portu mm -hmm. Portugal uh, did full decriminalization mm -hmm. and all of all of the the things that that the naysayers said would happen didn't happen mm -hmm. uh, they said that drug tourism would rise hugely mm -hmm. when that happened and yet 95 percent of the people that were being ticketed were residents of portugal mm -hmm. um since decriminalization hiv and aids rates have dropped dramatically mm -hmm. Um, crime rates have dropped dramatically. Mm -hmm. uh, the reinvestment of dollars actually has done great for their economy as well. Mm -hmm. So that oh. research is there. All of the research is mm -hmm. there that backs up harm reduction as hugely successful mm -hmm. and beneficial. And it's not just Portugal anymore. It's not There's just like Portugal. Scandinavian countries. There's all kinds of places trying this. Because Vancouver is in, it has approached Health Canada for... Um, permission to decriminalize within the city. Have they have they done that yet or are they still voting on that? I think they're still working, working on, on it, it? Yeah. and I, I think that Edmonton might have also put forth some sort I of I heard they're doing the same thing. Yeah. And I as someone who lives in Calgary in a conservative where mm. obviously the government view is nay you know, against harm <laughs> reduction. Yeah. I'm I'm really hopeful when it comes to Edmonton and Vancouver. Vancouver is kind of like, well, mm. if Vancouver can get in, then maybe the rest of the country yeah. can catch up too. Well, so. and it might take like it might take some cities watching other cities like in Canada, not across the water somewhere, but watching Canadian cities try to get through it. That might sway some like police chiefs and like city councilmen and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I almost, if, if it happens in Edmonton, it's a matter of time before it happens. That here. would be incredible. It'll happen here within a couple of years. I mean, Vancouver, right? I think, has the best chance. But yeah. if it like if it happens in Edmonton, I would be hugely surprised. Well, I think impressed. the dominoes will fall, right? And I, I really hope so. And that's what the conservative like 
people are afraid of is they think the dominoes falling is a bad thing. Like the dominoes are going to fall on society. We're all going to be like anarchists. But obviously that's not true. Well, I mean, it's so obvious where the problems are mm. that how can we not devote tax dollars to saving them? And those resources are saving money down the line. And, mm. and it's so obvious. I yeah. just, sometimes I'm like, why can't everyone just see this? Yeah, and I, you know what? That's a good question, and I, I often pose that, these questions to like colleagues that I have who are much smarter than I am, and they don't have answers either, by the way. Um, it's, <laughs> it's more like um, we have to be, something has to switch in our leadership overall, right, for, for these things to change. Much like for marijuana to become legal across Canada, Trudeau needed to come in. Yeah. I believe that 100%, because not everybody's going to do that shit. Like, there's not, because it's a huge chance, right? It's like, um, it, it's interesting, because you watch the, the provincial politicians here completely kill these safe consumption sites, right? And then you watch, like, people who are in the field talk about, oh, yeah, like, this government supports um, recovery, and it's like, well, how so? Like, they, were, they, they support one kind of recovery. But we have a, a problem, this opiate, if we're just going to talk about the opiates for a minute, we have this problem that requires more than one solution. Absolutely. We have, right? We have this problem that requires a whole gamut of solutions in order to move us forward out of these dark ages in terms of law enforcement on drugs and alcohol and stuff like that. Right? Absolutely. Because it's a waste of our resources. We haven't won the war. We're not even close. Like, let's start fighting in a different way, right? Fight for our people, for our humans that, that need help, you know? A hundred percent. Yeah, and I just, th I don't see that until we change that mentality. And that's why I, I feel like it's so important for people like me to get into policy because mm -hmm. I can see both sides. I've, I've lived mm -hmm. the effects and, and I can see the laws and how they affect people on mm -hmm. a larger scale. Yeah. And that's where I, I want to go with my education. And th that's where I want to make changes for my people. Mm -hmm. Right on. Yeah. Cool. What time are we at, dude? Wow, we're coming up on an hour. Excellent. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Because we don't have a time limit, right? We can. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's incredible all the stuff that you've already spoken about and your journey is pretty cool. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I also was sitting here, I'm not going to lie to you, this is going to be weird, what I'm about to say, but I don't mean it any weirder than it, just a little bit of weird. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know if I mean it weirdly. But as you're talking about the planting, planting seeds of change, all I'm thinking is, how did I meet two Heathers who are Métis and also love plants, right? Like, how could I, how, what's the odds of that happening is what I'm thinking of. But I think it's an incredible because it's such a natural connection. Right? Like to the natural world. So. I'm more connected to them, to picking them, than she can grow them and I'll pick them. This is my first okay, so there's actually growing them. Yeah. Okay, and so I, some people like to grow and some people pick. I got it. I always joke because I, I now have an aloe plant that I got last year. Yeah. And it's still alive. I'm very proud. Wow. And it, and it has baby plants coming out now. Ooh. And I'm, I'm really proud. I, I have killed aloe plants before in the past. Yeah. And so 
<laughs> I have this, my olive plant is still alive. It's next generation. Mm -hmm. I even have babies. I'm so proud of myself. Bro. Right, <laughs> right on. Success. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just think it's such a natural um, and sensible way to find that connection, right? And to, to uh, maintain it. Because as you said, like I, I've watched her obviously plant lots of stuff through the years, right? Back in the day. And and it was like amazing to me, who's not a green thumb at all. Yeah, not a green thumb at all. <laughs> Can't plant, would kill it. Like, I mean, honestly, our one of our neighbors gave me like catnip that they grew. And like within a week, it was dead. Like it was dead. <laughs> and they told me how to take care of it. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And then I was like, what did they say? Oh, water, whatever. <laughs> but it's, a, it's such a, a, a good way. And even in 12-step recovery, we, we use the gardening as an example for pruning, right? Like pruning those things about us that we want to get rid of so we can grow better. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's just such a natural connection, you know. Um, yeah, anyway, I, I think it's really, really cool what you're doing. Well, I received medicine teachings at a women's gathering I helped organize mm -hmm. last summer. Um, and my healer told me, she said that I, when she touched me, because I, I received a healing from her, and she touched me and she said, oh, as soon as I touch you, I see the plants. Oh, wow. And so those are messages that I received from my healer, too. Mm. And, and I remember that she told us, me and, and some friends, was that when I give you medicine, you need to use it. Mm. Don't hold on to it. Don't save it. Mm. And my other, one of my mentors told me that traditionally we, we give. And when we give, we give our best. Mm. And so I always hear those two things in my mind. Well, we always give our best. And so I try to really be generous with my medicines due to those two teachings. Mm. And so that's why I'm always, well, do you need some sage? Mm. Do you go to the, do you need some sweet grass? Are you sick? Have, I have some mullein, make some mm. tea. And, and so I think it really does tie in because I used to always have that fear and try to hold on because I don't know when I'm going to get, but mm. I really am trying to change my mindset and the way I think. And I know that I'll get more what mm -hmm. I need. Yeah. So if you need this and I have it, I'm just going to give it to you. Mm -hmm. And so I really try to embody that, not just with medicine, but with my time and my reason, whatever I have, if somebody needs. Mm -hmm. Just because, and, and I, don't, I don't judge people when I do that because I just really try to be the person that when I was in that situation, I wished I would come across. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Heather, it's been on it's been awesome having it's been awesome getting to know you. 